Okay, so this is our Simon Don reading group, continuing with Individuation Volume 2. Um, we're going to start the text form information and potentials uh, for it might take us two to three weeks, I think, to get through it, um, depending on how far we get each time. But uh, so last time we read uh, the end of Allegmatics. Um, I won't do like a detailed uh, summary of that text, um, but um, I guess I'll just mention that right at the end of that text, there's um, uh, a sort of program for what philosophy should do uh, in terms of um, looking at the different uh, levels of individuation uh, and how they relate to each other um, and um, the, the sort of reciprocity between structure and operation uh, being sort of the organizing principle of, uh, of um, philosophical thought. So the sciences, as they exist, uh, are sciences of structure. They look at um, the particular uh, configurations of entities, um, you know, uh, whether it's biology or chemistry or whatever. Um, and then Simon Don is um, sort of pointing towards a future development of a, a science of operations. And he sees cybernetics as being the first step in this direction. And then he sees the role of philosophy as having to do with um, the conversion from one to the other. So the relationship between operations and structures and, you know, operations of operations and so on. Um, and um, so this whole um, sort of program for philosophy will uh, look at different levels of individuation. So he, he points to physical, biological, psychological, and social systems. And um, so that more or less corresponds to the what we we actually end up getting in individuation volume one that we've gone through um and um yeah so that's sort of his uh working out of the program so allegmatics the text allegmatics is a, a kind of programmatic text and then we have the um uh realization of that program in individuation volume one and then form information potentials um is a text that uh is uh, subsequent to individuation volume one uh, or you know, you know roughly contemporary um, so it, it's the text of a presentation that Simon Don gave to the uh, French Society of uh, Philosophy in 1960 uh, so we actually read through this text um, before we started individuation um, over a year ago I don't know exactly when that was um, but we so we read uh, an earlier translation that included both the presentation itself and then the discussion period afterwards, which is um, sort of the the in the general publications of um, oh wow January twenty twenty that's a long time ago oh twenty twenty one okay yeah that seems um, uh, yeah that seems about right um, anyway yeah so the um, um, the sort of general format of these presentations to the French Society of Philosophy is there's a a presentation and then there's a discussion afterwards um and uh so the one the version we read the translation we read um before we started individuation contained both uh both those parts but the uh the version that's included here in individuation volume two is uh only the presentation so we don't have the discussion part um so we'll just go through simondo's presentation and uh uh you know discuss what issues come up or what questions we have as we um, go along. 
Uh, okay, so I'll read the first bit. Oh, maybe one last point. Yeah, so the, the, the first bit is, um, see, you'll see there's a heading uh, in the text that says argument. So that's the, the sort of summary of the um, presentation that was distributed to attendees before the, um, before the presentation. And then Simon Dong gives his actual lecture. Uh, and then um, the participants give their comments and uh, questions and so on afterwards. But we don't have that part. So um, I'll read through the argument part and then we can um, discuss. The absence of a general theory of the human sciences and of psychology makes it urgent for re reflexive thought to seek the conditions of a possible, possible axiomatization. With a view to initiating this labor, which necessarily involves a certain contribution of invention and cannot be the result of a pure synthesis, it is appropriate to revisit the main conceptual systems that have been employed without granting any privilege to the most recent ones. The discoveries of chemical theory at the beginning of the 19th century have renewed the atomistic schemas that were sketched out more than 20 centuries ago and have enriched them with the contribution of gravimetric analysis. In this sense, we could analogously renew the principles of the indefinite dyad of the archetype of form and matter bring them in line with the recent explanatory models of Gestalt psychology, and then those of cybernetics and information theory, by going so far as to invoke certain notions taken from the physical sciences, like that of potential. We would like to show that an outline of the axiomatics of the human sciences, or at least of psychology, is possible if we attempt to grasp the three notions of form, information, and potential together, on condition of adding, so as to inter internally link them and organize them, the definition of a particular type of operation that appears when there is form, information, and potential, that of the transductive operation. First, the notion of form in all, of, in all the doctrines in which it appears plays a, a constant functional role, that of a structural germ, which is a certain guiding and organizing power. The notion of form supposes a basic duality between two types of reality, the reality that receives form and the reality that is form or harbors form. This privilege of form depends on its unity, its totality, and its essential self-coherence. Even in Gestalt psychology, the form, which is no longer anterior to any matter, nevertheless conserves its superiority of Gantheit, totality, and there is a hierarchy of forms, good form, better form. Whether imminent or transcendent, prior to form taking or contemporaneous with this operation, form conserves its privilege of superiority with respect to matter or the elements. The foundation of every theory of form, whether it be archetypal, hylomorphic, or Gestaltist, is the qualitative, functional, and hierarchical asymmetry of form and of that which takes form. Second, the notion of information, on the contrary, is the keystone of every doctrine of reciprocity, equivalence, or reversibility of the active term and the passive term in the exchange. The emitter and the receiver are the two homogeneous extremities of a line in which information is transmitted with the maximum guarantee when the operation is reversible. Reversibility and univocity are supposed not only by the fact of control, but by the very condition of intelligibility. Coding and decoding are carried out according to conventions shared by the emitter and the receiver. Only a content can be transmitted, not a code. Information theory can be associated with any type of explanation that presupposes the symmetry and homogeneity of elements that are combined and take form through a process of addition or juxtaposition. More generally, the quantitative phenomena of mass and population, which stem from chaos theory and suppose the symmetry of elements and their unspecified character, can be thought in information theory. Third, the transductive operation would be the propagation of a structure of increasingly accumulating a field starting with a structural germ, like a supersaturated solution crystallizes starting with a crystalline germ. This supposes that the field is in metastable equilibrium, i.e. contains a potential energy that can be unleashed only through the emergence of a new structure, which is like a resolution of the problem. 
Consequently, information is not reversible. It is the short range organizing direction emanating from the structural germ and progressing through the field. The germ is the emitter, the field is the receiver, and the limit between the emitter and the receiver is continuously displaced when the operation of form taking occurs by progressing. It could be said that the limit between the structural germ and the structurable metastable field is a modulator. The energy of the field's metastability and thus the energy of matter is, is what makes it possible for structure and thus form to advance. Potentials reside in matter and the limit between form and matter is an amplificative relay. Phenomena of mass are not at all negligible, but they must be considered as conditions of the accumulation of potential energy in a field and properly speaking as conditions of the creation of the field as a possible domain of transductivity which supposes a relative homogeneity and a progressive division of energetic potentials. The matter-form relation is thereby transposed into the transductive relation and into the progress of the structuring structured couple across an active limit, which is the passage of information. Right, so this is um, a pretty dense summary of um, what he's going to go through in the rest of the text. So we um, some of the uh, obscurity of what he talks about here is, is going to be... Um, cleared up by reading the presentation itself. Um, but we can still see the, um, I guess, general strategy that he presents here is one of uh, of sort of re, um, re-energizing or re-renewing um, certain concepts that are drawn from ancient philosophy in the light of um, modern scientific developments. And so his model here, or his uh, example of this strategy is the revival of the atomistic hypothesis uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, so of course, atomism is a, uh, or was a philosophical doctrine that um, was proposed in ancient Greece um, by Democritus and Leucippus. Uh, so this was um, uh, essentially a philosophical hypothesis at that point. Uh, but then in the early 19th century, when chemists start to use um, gravimetric analysis, so they start to uh, use precise weighing of different um, stages of a chemical reaction. So you you weigh all your ingredients that you're starting from, you mix them together or perform whatever sort of chemical operation you want on them, and then you weigh the results, uh, including, um, you know, capturing the smoke that is emitted and weighing that smoke and things like that. So you you want to um, weigh every component of the operation. Uh, and of course, if you do that precisely, then the total mass of the result is equal to the total mass of the, um, the inputs. Um, but you, um, uh, as a result of this sort of use of precise weighing of, of all the uh, components of a chemical operation, uh, the the atomistic hypothesis was sort of re-energized um, or reformulated and and used in a, a new context um, with much more precise scientific meaning as opposed to being uh, a sort of philosophical hypothesis as it was in ancient Greece. Um, and so it now had uh, so you could you could assert not just that um, the atoms of mercury are different than the atoms of iron, for example, um, but you could uh, give a precise weight, you could say the atoms of mercury are, you know, X percent heavier than uh, the atoms of, of iron or, or vice versa. Um, so you can, you have a much more, um, uh, the, the atomistic hypothesis has much more content in, in the 19th century than it did in uh, uh, 5th century BC Greece. Um, 
And so that's sort of the general approach that Simon Dome wants to take here is to take um, certain concepts, uh, particularly the um, the concepts of form and matter, and try to um, reformulate them in light of uh, more recent scientific developments. So he points to uh, Gestalt psychology and cybernetics and information theory as the, the main um, sort of domains of inspiration here. And um, so Gestalt psychology, of course, is uh, oriented in general towards the uh, the notion of form. Um, and so there's an obvious link with um, the hylomorphic doctrine or the the concept of form and matter from ancient philosophy. Um, and then, uh, so Simon Dong is going to sort of go through the connection that he sees here. So there's this notion of form as a, a kind of hierarchical notion. So there's some, uh, so there's a, a distinction between form and matter in the sense that the form is sort of self, uh, self-contained or self-coherent in a way that matter is not. Uh, and then form has also the capacity to impose its form onto matter. So it's uh, it's um, this form matter pair is hierarchical in that sense that the form has a, a sort of um, primacy over matter. It has the capacity to um, uh, impose itself on matter. Um, and then there's also this hierarchy within the forms uh, themselves between, say, a good form and a, a better form or a good form and a, a less good form. Uh, so that's what Simono takes to be the sort of the central um, concept of, uh, of form. Uh, and then uh, information is uh, sort of in contrast to this hierarchical concept of form is a, a reciprocal concept. So uh, an information transmission channel like a telephone line is sort of the, the type of um, uh, uh, technical object that Simon is thinking of here. Uh, so this um, information transmission channel is something that can transmit information reversibly. So you can, like in a telephone, on a telephone line, you can uh, receive information from someone else and you can also transmit information to someone else. Um, and it's um, the the emitter and the receiver of information are um, sort of more adapted to each other, the more similar they are to each other in the sense that uh, if the receiver um, can uh, sort of has a set of, of possible states that matches the set of possible states of the transmitter, then you can transmit information from one to the other in a, a, a lossless manner. So you can, uh, for each state of the transmitter, you can uh, have w one state of the receiver that corresponds to it. Um, and, uh, and so in, in that sense, you can um, transmit information about the state of the transmitter uh, without losing any information. Uh, in when the receiver receives the information. And then the, the third point that he introduces here is the um, the notion of a transductive operation, which of course we've seen throughout um, volume one and the other texts that we've read in volume two of individuation. Uh, so this is a, a, a transductive operation is an operation of uh, form taking or of structuring that progresses gradually across some uh, a domain that is unstructured. Um, so he, um, the sort of stock example that he always uses is the uh, crystallization example. So you have a, a, a supersaturated solution, um, and then there's a, a structuring germ, a crystalline germ within this solution, and then around this germ, the uh, 
crystal forms in layers. So each um, the surface of the crystal will um, accrete new crystalline structure, and then the new surface, um, new structure, new crystal forms on that surface. Uh, and so it progressively um, structures the whole uh, solution. Um, and so this this is sort of his model for how form uh, sort of is uh, is transmitted across something that is not formed. Uh, and and so this transductive operation is is the um, the model that he wants to use for form taking or or the generation of form in something that is not already formed. This point that he makes about reversibility in um, hylomorphism information theory and transduction I think is interesting. It's uh, hylomorphic form taking is irreversible information and information theory is ideally perfectly reversible. And he also says that I think in transduction, it's not reversible. But the transduction that he's talking about here is the transduction that he associates with the physical domain in individuation volume one and in the um at least in the psychic domain and i think in the biological domain there's a different kind of transduction um which is the uh he calls it the like a qualitative or intensive spectrum uh that spreads out from a center um but i guess with respect to reversibility um you know, he often talks about signification as problem resolution. And I wonder if the kind of transduction that characterizes um, psychic individuation, if he would see it as more reversible than the physical, the transduction in physical individuation, which I think would be, um, I think it's, you know, if, if psychic individuation involves like philosophical problems, for instance, I think it would be maybe more interesting to see those structurations as reversible than as irreversible in the sense that like crystalline structuration is. Yeah, that's an interesting um, connection to make. Um, what comes to mind for me is the the bit in the conclusion where he talks about, um, in the con conclusion of volume one, I should say, um, where he talks about the... Um, about death in living beings and how living beings, um, they have their, you know, a living being is in a metastable state because it, it's always capable of um, undergoing further transformation and development and, uh, you know, solving problems and so on. But there is a sort of finite stock of this metastability in a living being. So we each have, um, you know, a certain capacity to solve problems, um, in, in our vital individuation, but that capacity is exhausted at some point, um, and, and that's what death is. So, so there's a kind of internality of death to the living being in the sense that um, it's by virtue of, you know, the activity of a living being is, is problem solving uh, and, you know, um, um, undergoing this uh, transductive operation. Um, but by virtue of performing that activity, you are sort of using up your capacity to uh, perform that activity in the future. Uh, and so, so it, it's in that sense that death is internal to the life of a living being. Um, and so I think the um, sort of reversible 
type of um, structuration that that you were pointing to in you know vital individuation to some extent, and then probably more so in psychical individuation. Um, it seems like for Simondon, this reversibility sort of rests upon a, a, an ultimate irreversibility. Um, and, you know, to the extent that we think that um, physical individuation is the, the most fundamental form of individuation uh, and then vital individuation is a sort of, um, uh, you know, as Simondon described it as is a kind of slowing down of physical individuation. Um, um, so if we think that vital individuation and psychical individuation are, are in some sense grounded in physical individuation, then it would make sense that the irreversibility of physical individuation would um, sort of have consequences at the level of vital individuation as well. So um, we, um, even though there is this reversibility in the sense that you can, uh, so a, a living being can um, say acquire a habit um, and you know learn that you know pressing this lever makes sugar water come out of the tube or whatever um but then they can also um uh, unacquire that habit if the experiment changes and then pressing the lever produces an electric shock instead uh, they can learn to not press the lever um so that's a sort of basic example but a living being can um acquire a structure and then um uh, sort of destructure that structure um but uh um that whole process, um, even though there's a sort of a, at one level there's a reversibility, um, at a, another level that process of learning and then unlearning and then learning a new um, pattern is uh, is a kind of um, involves a using up of that metastability um, stock or that um, sort of finite capacity of of metastability that makes up a living being, uh, and so that um, there's a, a kind of um, uh, yeah, a finitude of metastability that is um, characteristic of vital individuation as well, and then irreversibility that underlies the reversibility. Yeah, I think that the point about the um, death by stabilization and vital individuation, I always thought that was really interesting uh, in light of the idea that vital individuation is like a slowed down physical individuation, because it seems like the, like you could see the death by stabilization as like a a much slower form of crystallization it just you know kind of arrives at the same place but uh much more slowly yeah so in the case of the crystal the the actual form taking is essentially instantaneous so each layer of the crystallization um um you know happens instantaneously or you know so quickly that there's no um you know perceptual time that passes uh and then the crystallization of the whole um uh, solution happens relatively quickly as well, you know, maybe in a few hours or depending on how big the um, jar is or whatever. Um, but, uh, and then Simondo points out that the crystal itself has no um, sort of temporal structure in the sense that once the crystal is formed, um, the the inside of the crystal is just sort of dead and inert. Um, the, the only operation that happens in crystallization is at the limit of the crystal. Um, Whereas in a living being, um, the, the, the living being has a, a sort of temporal structure um, inherent to it in the sense that the, uh, the living being um, has uh, an inside and an outside and the inside and outside uh, interact with each other in various ways. And um, the, 
there's there's a sort of simultaneity of the living being, whereas the crystal has the the interior. Uh, Simon Dole points out the interior of a crystal is anterior. Um, uh, it's it's sort of uh, a dead past that has no direct impact on the present, which the the present of the crystal is only at its limit where the crystallization is actually happening now. Whereas the living being uh, is sort of simultaneous with itself. Every um, component of the living being is in interaction with every other component. Um, and so um, it's it's as if the living being is completely like it's as if the the limit of the crystal is sort of spread out throughout the whole the whole crystal in a living being um so the whole living being is uh is undergoing that modulation that um structuration um but uh ultimately at the end of a uh, lifespan um the living being sort of reverts to a um, a physical individuation like a crystal in the sense that it's it has an an anterior um, that is not um, part of its living individuation anymore, uh, and so um, yeah, so it, it's it's a, a sort of um, slower version of uh, it's it's as if that moment of individuation at the limit of a crystal is expanded to spread out over a lifespan instead of taking place instantaneously. Um, but then the the end point of that individuation is is still a, a physical. Um, uh, entity um, which has an anterior um, and uh, and a, a present in the same way that a crystal does. Yeah, we were uh, before we started recording. We were talking about um, the whole notion of an end of history, and uh, yeah, maybe crystallization um, sort of points towards this, uh, or maybe we can think of the end of history as a, a kind of crystallization, where history as a whole process of individuation would um, sort of come to an end with uh, something analogous to a crystal that has a um, an anterior that is no longer operative. Um, yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I haven't really thought about that. Maybe if your thinking just slows down enough, you begin to think that you are living in the end of history. Yeah, that's another, uh, another possibility. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, if someone else would like to read uh, a page or so, I think. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, about a page. Yeah. Yeah, I can read. Uh, so this is, I guess, the lecture itself. Mr. Director, ladies and gentlemen, as Director Berger just pointed out, there is a certain relation between <clears throat> a study of the technical object and the problem presented here, which is that of form, information, and potentials. However, the technical object is only meant to serve as a model, example, and perhaps paradigm for interpreting in a way that we in a way that we do not seek to present as new, but in a way that we hope might be explanatory. The problem of the rapport between the notion of form and its various types, the notion of information, and ultimately the notion of potential or potential energy. What encouraged us to seek a correlation between form, information, and potentials is the will to find the starting point for an axiomatics of the human sciences. In our day, we speak of the human sciences, and, indeed, and there are indeed technologies of human manipulation. That this phrase, quote-unquote, human sciences, is always in the plural. The pr plural probably signifies that we have not managed to define a unitary axiomatics for it. Why are there multiple human sciences when there is only a physics? Why are we always obligated to speak of psychology, sociology, and psychosociology? Why are we obligated to distinguish 
different fields of study within psychology, sociology, and social psychology. And we shall not mention the other possible human sciences. By studying these three alone, i.e. a science that proposes to study groups, a science that proposes to study the individual being, and a science that explains the correlation between groups and the individual being, we find a multitude of fields and an almost indefinite subdivision of study. This reveals that even concerning only one of these human sciences, the search for unity is quite problematic in that we must found an often reductive theory to arrive at the unity within each of these sciences. We observe a unity of tendencies rather than a unity of explanatory principles. If we compare the current situation of the human sciences to that of the natural sciences, such as this situation was in antiquity in the 16th century or the beginning of the 19th century, we find that at the beginning of the 19th century, there was a physics and a chemistry, perhaps even several physics and several chemistries. Conversely, little by little, at the beginning of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, we have seen grand theories that we've seen grand theories arise that have contributed various possibilities of axiomatization. Thus, in the domain of electricity and magnetism, circa 1864, Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light appeared, which is and probably will remain the example of a creative synthesis. It is a synthesis because it joins together the ancient elements of various studies on the reciprocal actions of currents and fields, on phenomena of induction, and it is creative because it contributes a new notion through which synthesis is possible and without which axiomatization would not exist. The notion of displacement currents, these displacement currents, these displacement currents become the propagation of the electromagnetic field, such as Hertz revealed experimentally 20 years later. Could the same work be accomplished in the human sciences? Could human science be founded, obviously, by respecting the possibilities of multiple applications, but by having at least a common axiomatics applicable to various domains? Um, I guess not, that wasn't like a very dense page, but uh, the idea that he was motivated by the desire to axiomatize the human sciences is interesting to me, given that so much of individuation volume one is focused on um, like physics and biology, basically. And it's really only psychic and collective individuation that uh, deals with sociology and psychology, among other things. Um, and also, I guess, given, as we noted when we were reading volume one, that all of his illustrative examples are in uh, physical and the vital individuation sections. And there are almost no uh, illustrations of his, his um, the ideas that he has about trans-individuality and psychic and collective individuation. Um, it's a bit strange if his goal was to, his you know, ultimate focus was on the human sciences, as he seems to suggest here. Yeah, it's definitely in volume one, um, the physical and vital individuation parts are definitely much more worked out than the psychical and collective individuation parts. Uh, and in terms of the publication history, we see that he, um, he published uh, those first two parts, the physical and vital individuation um, in his lifetime uh, in 1958, I believe, or 1960, I can't remember exactly. Um, um, but yeah, so he publishes those and then he, you know, he lived another 27 years after that uh, and he never published the rest of the book. So there's, I think we can at least speculate that he was not 100% satisfied with the rest of the presentation as it um as it appears in volume one of individuation. Um, um, 
so he yeah he's he's definitely um much more complete when it comes to physical and vital individuation and, and i think you can sort of make sense of that because um physical science is obviously much more um advanced and um structured than say psychology is um so there's much more sort of um um uh, base basic knowledge in uh in physical science that you can sort of take on board and then use as a, a paradigm and um sort of apply in the way that Simon Don does in volume one compared to psychology where um pretty much every um sort of finding is uh you know disputable in some sense or you know the the actual sort of um uh you know validity of that result is is questioned and so on um so there's a, a sort of a stock of knowledge in the case of psychic uh, of uh, physical individuation that is not um present in the case of psychical individuation uh and so um just in terms of the material that's available it, it does make sense that the the first two parts of the book would be much more um well developed than the later parts of the book um but yeah, so it's interesting that in terms of the the motivation and then the actual results seem to be sort of um, opposite to each other. Uh, um, so, um, yeah, and that I think also a lot of the secondary literature on Simon Don has sort of focused on the the first two parts, you know, in part because that's what was available for so long. Um, but um, it's it seems you know in in this text and other places it seems like what Simon Don thought was sort of his his more um uh what was more important to him was uh precisely the psychical and collective individuation that uh that is less well worked out um so yeah that's also you know maybe a, a sort of imbalance in terms of the attention that his work has uh has um gotten yeah and then you can also sort of speculate about the um the external circumstances um yeah so like you know, he did have to um, uh, finish his dissertation and so on. So um, you can, um, you know, potentially see the the um, psychical and collective individuation part as being sort of um, rushed or um, you know not as well worked out as the the physical and vital individuation, just because he had to you know get something together so that he could submit as a dissertation. Um, so yeah, I don't know, you know the sort of biographical details and how how accurate that is but um um that's another sort of um suggestion about why it's not as well um developed as the first part uh, and then the other bit that i'll um mention in, in the part that we just read is this example of maxwell's um electromagnetic theory of light which uh we've we've looked at a couple of times in in different texts that uh that this example has come up but um just to quickly um uh, just mentioned this. So the there's the the theory of light as a wave that we we talked about last week with Cranel. Um, um, so there's the there were sort of two competing theories of light in uh, the 17th century. That Newton proposed a, um, a corpuscular theory of light. So light is composed of uh, particles of some kind. Um, and then there was a wave theory of light, which I believe Huygens was um, um, associated with. Um, so it says that light is a wave of some kind that's, you know, um, comparable to sound in some way. Um, and these two theories were sort of competing with each other. They each had their strengths and weaknesses. They, they were able to explain certain phenomena, but not others. Um, 
And then, so Maxwell takes the wave theory of light and he um, uh, sort of unites it with the theory of electricity and magnetism. So he takes all these, you know, light, electricity, magnetism, shows how they all are sort of related to each other. The same uh, constant C the, for the speed of light in a vacuum appears in the theory of electromagnetism and, of course, in the um, the theory of, of light. Um, uh, and so this, uh, uh, one of the consequences of Maxwell's theory or one of the um, conclusions that you can draw from Maxwell's theory is that there should be other forms of electromagnetic radiation. So light is one form of electromagnetic radiation, but there should be um, uh, electromagnetic radiation at other wavelengths. And that's what um, was discovered later in the 19th century. Um, Hertz and other people um, discovered radio waves, um, ultraviolet radiation, and so on, all of these other forms of electromagnetic radiation that uh, fall outside of the visible spectrum. Uh, and so um, for Simon Don, this is sort of the, the key example of a creative, um, what he calls a creative synthesis. So it takes um, various, um, various phenomena in physics of electricity and magnetism and sort of shows how they all sort of link together, how each one is, brings about the others and so on. Um, and um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a creative synthesis because it's not just sort of um, taking these different phenomena and seeing what they all have in common, but it has to invent a new set of concepts that um, allow for us to grasp all these phenomena as part of one sort of underlying phenomenon of electromagnetism. Uh, and so uh, for Simon Don, this is um, sort of one of the like um, crowning achievements of science is uh, the theory of electromagnetism. And uh, um, he is sort of suggesting that um, the human sciences need a similar type of um, creative synthesis. So it would be introducing new concepts that allow us to grasp the unity of the human sciences uh, as opposed to taking each individual science as a sort of um, limited domain that is uh, independent of the others. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, 61, do you want to read or uh, um, I can read if not? Yes, one second, one second. What page are we on? Uh, we are on page 675 of the PDF. We are at what encourages us to pursue this inquiry. Okay, and is my microphone okay? Sometimes I've been, yeah. I've been having the difficulty, okay. Uh, what encourages us to pursue this inquiry is the vision of the evolution of the natural sciences. There was once a separate physics and chemistry, now there is a physico-chemistry, and we are seeing the correlations between physics and chemistry become increasingly strong. Would there not be between the two extreme terms, between the theory of group, sociology, and the theory of individual, psychology, a way to seek a middle term that would be precisely the active and common center of a possible axiomatization? Indeed, we see in several cases that even if we take the most directly monographic, and interiorist individual psychology, or even if we take the sociology of the largest groups, we are always led to a search for correlation, one necessitated by the fact that in sociology there is no group of all groups, or in psychology within the individual there is no element or atom of thought that could be isolated so as to make it the analog of the simple chemical body, which would enable the recomposition of everything through combinations with other simple elements. The isolation of a monad, the psychological atom, or of a human group that would be a totality, a type of social universe, is found to be impossible. In sociology, there is no humanity, and in psychology, there is no ultimate element. We are always at the level of correlations, whether we go toward the search for elements within the individual, 
or towards the vastest social groups. Under these conditions, the lesson gained from the evolution of the natural sciences encourages us to revoke, to revoke, uh, revoke the oldest principles of explanation that have been proposed within the human sciences. Insofar as these principles are principles of correlation, this is why we have believed to be able to choose notions such as form, information, and potentials, starting with the notion of form. This notion is probably one of the oldest notions defined by philosophers who have always been interested in the study of human problems. Certainly, the notion of form has evolved quite a bit, but at first we find it in the Platonic archetype, then in Aristotle's matter-form relation, and in the hylomorphic schema. We find it again after a very long winding path in the Middle Ages, and in the 16th century, sometimes as Platonic and sometimes as Aristotelian. We also find it again at the very end of the 19th century and in the 20th century, in this resumption of old notions under a new influence called Gestalt psychology. Gestalt psychology renews the notion of form and, to a certain extent, carries out the synthesis of Platonic archetypal form and Aristotelian hylomorphic form, thanks to an exemplary and explanatory notion drawn from the natural sciences, the notion of field. We will attempt to show that the notion of form is necessary, but that it alone does not make possible the foundation of an axiomatics of the human science if it is not presented within a system that includes information and potentials in the sense in which we speak of potential energy. I will therefore attempt to trace a historical evolution of the notion of form, which is first archetypal, archetypal then hylomorphic, and lastly gestaltist. And then I will attempt to show how it is insufficient for our axiomatizing intention. I will then add a certain number of considerations relative to information. And finally, I will attempt to present what would allow the notion of information to be joined with that of form. This is what I have called the transductive operation, or also modulation, which can only exist within a domain of reality in a metastable state containing potential energy. Right. Um, so yeah, this is, so he's, he's going to... Um, Start with the notion of form, as he points out here. Um, so we, um, out of these three notions, form, information, potentials, we start with form, and then we look at um, the historical development of this notion. So the the Platonic notion of form, the Aristotelian notion of uh, hylomorphism, form and matter, uh, and then the use of this notion of form in Gestalt psychology, um, and um, he's going to argue that the notion of form is insufficient for um, for this axiomatization of the human sciences. So you can't um, you can't sort of reconstruct the human sciences around the notion of form on its own, but he's going to propose that uh, the notion of form plus the information plus the notion of information and then uh, linked together through this notion of uh, potentials and transductive operation, uh, all of that together is going to allow for the unification of the human sciences in the way that he's um, calling for here. Uh, and then there's also this bit um, just before that where he talks about um, how there's no um, sort of universal group in sociology and there's no um, sort of ultimate element in psychology. So um, I think he made the same point in uh, the psychical individuation chapter, if I remember correctly, um, that in, in sociology, we never have to do um, with humanity as a whole or with a universe of, uh, uh, of every social being, even if, um, you know, to some extent in the development since Simon uh, Doe's uh, time, we have, uh, of course, globalization. And maybe we can say that today there, um, there is a, a social group that is humanity as a whole. Um, 
but this uh, social group is um, in principle open in the sense that um, um, we, even if every human being, uh, um, as a matter of fact, participates in a particular social group um, that we can call humanity, um, that would just be a sort of contingent fact about the the set of uh, living beings that um, or psychical individuals that happen to be part of this social group. It would always, in principle, be possible that um, I don't know Martians or some mm. creature that lives in the ocean or whatever, some other intelligent creature might um, not be part of our society and might have its own society, um, and uh, and so. In, in this sense, there's no universe of social order, um, uh, even if we take it that there is such a thing as humanity, uh, which maybe was not the case in, in the time Simon Dome was writing. Um, even if we take it that today there is a social group of humanity that includes every human being, um, there's still um, sort of the, the possibility of other social beings that have their own societies that are not included in um in humanity um and so that in that sense there's no universe of social beings there's no one social group that includes every um every uh social being and then even if we do take it that there is something like humanity uh, a social group that every human being belongs to um it's clear that within that social group there are also subgroups um you know whether you want to talk about nations um uh, social classes, uh, you know, different regions within different nations and so on. Um, um, so each of these sort of subgroups is, uh, uh, is a social group as well. And the sociology has to do not just with the interaction of individuals within each of these groups, but also the interactions of these groups with each other. Um, and so it, it's also in that sense that we can't say that there's a, a single group that would be a, a universe of, of, the social order, um, because the social order is itself structured in in terms of the relationships between different groups. Um, so, so in both these senses, the social universe is not, or there's no such thing as a social universe, a, a single group in which every other um, individual would find its place. And then the other side is uh, in psychology. There's no atom. There's no sort of element of psychology um, out of which you could build up uh, the whole. Um, uh, sort of psychical life of a, a, a living being, of a, of a psychical individual. Um, so in, especially in 19th century psychology, there was this atomistic approach where the um, psychologists tried to analyze um, experience into its elements so that um, like visual experience would be made up of uh, colored points um, and um, there was a whole sort of debate or or discussion about how exactly um, the spatial arrangement of colored points is brought about. So, like for example, if you see um, a red dot to the left of a, a green dot, um, that to the left of is not something that you would is not something that you have a visual sensation of. So, how exactly do you um, like how is that spatial structure um, sort of part of your visual experience. And then there were people who argued that there were um, spatial signs so that like there, there is something in your experience that is a sign of the location of a, of a red dot, um, uh, which is kind of an artificial solution, I think. Um, 
Um, but in sort of in general, the idea was that you start with like the most basic um, sets of sensations, you know, color, um, color dots and uh, um, uh, tones and um, uh, sensations of, of touch and so on. And then these um, elements are sort of um, bound together through the laws of association. So uh, contiguity, um, causation, and uh, I forget, you know, similarity, I think was the other one. Um, anyway, the, through through the laws of association, we tend to sort of join together these different sensations. And so we say that, um, you know, this white object that has a certain, uh, uh, or this white sensation that we have, um, and the sensation of a certain taste get associated together. And then we say that that's sugar. Um, um, uh, you know, we just sort of join together all these elementary sensations and our psychical life is built up through the, the combination of these um, uh, psychological atoms. Uh, and, you know, just as a sort of contingent historical fact, that approach to psychology didn't really work. There are lots of reasons that... Um, um, this is not really a, a good way of um, explaining mental life. Um, and Gestalt psychology was uh, sort of developed in large part in opposition to this approach to psychology. Uh, and so one of the sort of key facts that they pointed out, for example, is that if you take a, a melody, um, you know, a simple tune, happy birthday or whatever, um, if you change one note in the melody, then it, it's, it becomes a different melody. It, uh, it has a, wholly, a, whole, a completely different um, uh, sort of structure, it, it's not the same melody. Whereas if you take the whole melody and move it up an octave or down an octave, um, then it sort of preserves the same uh, structure. It, it's, it's still happy birthday, even if you sing it um, an octave higher or an octave lower. Um, uh, and so here we see that the rather than having a melody being built up out of individual sensations of tone, uh, instead the whole melody has a, a certain pattern that can be preserved through transformations and it has it, uh, whereas other transformations modify that pattern and um, um, uh, sort of turn it into a, a different pattern. Uh, and so this was taken to be a, a sort of um, uh, anti-atomistic argument uh, in the sense that it shows that the, the melody as a whole is, uh, is perceived or ex experienced as opposed to just having a sequence of tones that are um, associated with each other through the laws of association. Uh, so that's sort of the the background that Simon Do is is working with here, and um, the that's sort of the argument that he is presupposing um, against the the notions of uh, uh, an atom or an element of experience and um, a universe of society. And this idea that um, he's trying to find an axiomatic to unite the human sciences. He often speaks of signification as the discovery of a new axiomatic. And I wonder if he sort of sees himself as trying to find a, a signification between, I guess, the disparate terms of these concepts from information sciences and, um, and uh, physics. And on the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, human sciences like sociology and psychology. And if maybe that would be an example of the kind of, uh, the kind of um, individuation that is a relation in knowledge that he talks about sometimes, in, I guess, in um, volume one and in Allegmatics. 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting suggestion. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think the way that he would um, describe the sort of intellectual operation that he's doing here is um, um, he, he sometimes talks about um, taking physical individuation as a paradigm. Uh, so this crystallization example, uh, and then using analogy to um, sort of um, um, spread this uh, paradigm or the, the, the schema of operation of this paradigm into other domains. Uh, and so this operation itself is a transductive operation. So you, you take the so the the crystallization idea, the schema of operation of crystallization is a sort of structural germ that um, can be introduced into another domain of thought and then bring about a structuration in that domain as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's this. So his concept of transduction and, and his um, sort of transductive account of um, of of knowledge is um, has a sort of reflexive character in the sense that it itself operates in a transductive way. Um, so I think that's um, uh, I think he's trying to um, sort of demonstrate the uh, validity of this operation of thought um, sort of in practice. So it, it's um, rather than sort of um, deducing the validity of this mode of operation of thought. He is sort of putting it to work and then showing how it um, sort of self-generates its own validity, if that makes sense. Um, so it, he's he's performing the actual operation of transduction sort of in front of us and allowing us to um, uh, sort of observe it in action as opposed to sort of starting from first principles and then deducing that um, transductive thinking is valid from uh, on that basis. Okay, um, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read. Um, just give me a second. Um, right, so where are we? Uh, yes. Okay. Here we should add an explanatory aside concerning the subject of the term modulation. The word is not taken in the broad technical sense that it has when one speaks of the modulation of the final stage of an emitter, but in the more restricted sense that designates the operation being completed in an amplificative relay with a, an infinite number of states, like, for example, a hot cathode triode, tetrode, pentode, or a transistor. Modulation is the operation through which a signal of low energy, like one that is sent onto the grid of a triode, actualizes with a certain number of possible degrees the potential energy represented by the anodic circuit and the actuator, which is the external charge of this anodic circuit. The term is not perfect since it is slightly ambiguous, given that one also means by modulation this mutual influence of two energies, one of which is the future support of information like, for example, a high-frequency oscillation, and the other of which is the energy already informed by a signal, like, for example, example the low-frequency current that modulates the high-frequency oscillation in the procedure of the anodic uh, modulation of emitters. Thus, there is a semantic precision that must be contributed from the start in order to define this type of physical interaction. If pure psychology and pure sociology are impossible because there is no extreme element in psychology and no set of all sets in sociology, it is necessary to see how the psychologists and the sociologists of antiquity treated the processes of interaction and influence. Let's first take up the significative and complementary opposition between the archetypal form in Plato and the hylomorphic form in Aristotle. Plato's archetypal form is the model of everything that is superior, eternal, and unique according to a vertical mode of interaction. The archetype from arche, meaning origin, and tupos, meaning imprint, is the first mode. This word designates the stamp by means of which money can be minted, what we call a hallmark today. 
The tupas is the imprint and also the strike. With a piece of engraved steel, characters can be stamped onto a tablet of precious metal, and this archetype can yield the same figure, the same configuration, with this deformable matter of the metal tablet. If the archetype is made of good steel, all the pieces minted with the same hallmark resemble one another and are rec recognizable because, in a causal manner, they all stem from the same operation of modulation based on the archetype. The archetype can certainly degrade, but its ontological superiority should be noted. If one of the pieces is lost, only this piece becomes lost. Whereas if the archetype is lost, a new one must be cast from the piece. And the piece can only contain a lesser perfection than that of the archetype. The second archetype will not be absolutely similar to the first. In other words, from one piece to the next minted with the same archetype, there is a certain number of random fluctuations, a grain of sand here, an inequality of metal there, covered by a central tendency. This central normative and superior tendency is represented by the first form, which is that of the hallmark, the archetype. Here we find a model of a process of interaction that hardly merits the name interaction, but is an extreme term for all the other possible types of interaction. A non-reciprocal, irreversible interaction without return between the piece and the archetype, which harbors an asymmetry that is fundamental. The archetype is superior to the piece. There is no complementary rapport, for the archetype does not require pieces to exist. It is both anterior and superior. It exists before every piece. This is the model of the theory of ideas in Plato. The forms, which are like the, the archetypes, allowing for the explanation of the existence of sensible objects. These sensible objects are comparable to pieces that were minted with hallmarks, the ideas. The hallmarks are immutable. They exist beyond the sphere of the fixed stars and do not degrade. The engendered being, i.e. the sensible object, which is in Genesis, coming to be, and phtora, passing away, can degrade, but the form, toidos, does not degrade. It is no longer possible, uh, it is no longer capable of progress, which leads to a theory of knowledge in which man can only recall the form on the occasion of encountering the sensible and the difficulties that arise when the knowing subject deals with the sensible object. Man can only recall the vision of the forms and interpret the sensible object based on this vision without a veritable inductive approach of thought. Why? Because the entire perfection of form, the entire perfection of structural content is given at the origin. Plato constructs a metaphysical universe and an epistemological system in which perfection is given at the origin. Perfection, the highest richness of structure, resides in this world that is beyond the sphere of the fixed stars, i.e. is itself eternal and transcendent, and is subject to neither degradation nor progress. Degradation only characterizes what is engendered. What is engendered based on the relation of exemplarism can degrade, or instead, to the mere extent in which the soul is the sister of the ideas, it can direct an ascent back towards original perfection. Here we have an example of the first Platonism, whereby philosophy's intent is to seek out, by way of this thrura, ward, under the watchful eye of the gods, this expression is attributed to Socrates, a return to this world in which we once again rediscover the archetypes. Uh, okay, let's stop here. Um, yeah, so we have... Um, his uh, bit about modulation here, which he ex explains in terms of um, vacuum tubes, which is probably not a very helpful explanation for us in uh, the 21st century, since we rarely use vacuum tubes. Um, but the idea of modulation is you have one um, carrier signal, you have um, uh, a transmission of energy, um, uh, and then you have um, uh, some sort of modulation of that carrier signal. So you have um, uh, a fluctuation in terms of uh, frequency or amplitude or whatever um, that modifies the um, the the carrier signal, um, and uh, so this is what he means by modulation. Um, and then he goes on to talk. So he he's going to go through his um, history of the notion of form, uh, and so he starts with Plato, 
Um, and so he takes it that the sort of uh, technical paradigm that Plato is drawing from is the minting of money. Um, so you have the um, what um, uh, what here he calls the hallmark. Um, I'm just trying to find what it is in French because that's a kind of uh, right. That's coin. Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if hallmark is a great um, translation here, but um, anyway, the idea is that you have um, uh, when you're minting a coin, you you use um, a piece of steel that has the the shape that you want in reverse on it, um, and then you stamp the piece of precious metal, uh, gold or silver or whatever, um, and you um, you impose your desired form onto your piece of precious metal, and that's your coin. Um, and um, Simon Don here points out that the archetype has a sort of ontological priority over, or the the stamp has an ontological priority over the pieces of money that you produce with it. So if you if you lose a piece of money, then you just lose one of the um, uh, you've only lost that one piece of money or that one instance of the form. Whereas if you lose the archetype, you have to try to recreate it front on the basis of one of the pieces of money. And so you lose information uh, in the sense that each um, each piece of money is slightly is, is slightly imperfect in relation to the uh, stamp. Um, you know that if there's a, a piece of dust or um, the metal is not uh, entirely even or whatever, um, every every time you use the stamp, you are um, producing a slightly imperfect copy of that form. Uh, and so if you if you lo lose the stamp and you have to recreate the stamp on the basis of one of the pieces of money, then you're copying an imperfect copy. Uh, and so you've lost information uh, uh, in this process. So it's in this sense that the stamp has an ontological priority over the uh, the piece of money um, that you produce with the stamp. Um, right, and this, so this is the, the sort of model of um, the notion of form for Plato. So he takes it that, um, entities in general are produced uh, or sort of are the result of a kind of ontological operation of stamping. So there, there are these forms that um, uh, are sort of imposed onto, um, onto matter. Uh, and um, the entities that we see in the world are um, these sort of imperfect copies of the, the forms. Uh, and so in the same way that um, the stamp has an ontological priority over the pieces of money that you make with it, the forms have an ontological priority over the entities that um, uh, participate in the forms or that are the, the result of this um, sort of ontological stamping operation. Uh, and then the consequence of this uh, metaphysical conception in the theory of knowledge is that uh, knowledge can only ever be a recollection um, or a reminiscence of uh, of the forms. So the forms have the structure uh, sort of in its perfect state at the outset, uh, at the origin of, of entities. Uh, and so knowing those entities can only ever be um, sort of a, a reacquaintance with that form or with that structure. Uh, and so uh, the idea of an inductive approach of knowledge where you would sort of start from uh, individual entities and, and then sort of try to grasp um, uh, some sort of general principle that governs them uh, on that basis, this whole approach to knowledge is, is ruled out um, just by virtue of the metaphysical structure of the universe that Plato um, 
proposes. Um, so yeah, so we only ever um, we only ever have knowledge by virtue of reminiscence or um, uh, recollection of the forms, uh, and and so this is what knowledge consists in. Uh, and then uh, so the the metaphysical picture and the epistemological picture are sort of um, uh, in alignment with each other in Plato. So the the idea of the modulation in the triad. Um, it seems like what he's saying is that the the sort of the third um, I can't remember if the grid is also a cathode in the triode um, is what actualizes the potential energy between the anode and the cathode. Um, that would that would make sense to me in light of the if he's saying that he seems to say that this the role of the um, grid is amplification, which is also how he describes the process of crystallization. So it would it would make sense if the amplification of the grid was performing the same function that the limit of the crystal was performing in structuring or turning the energetic condition in the solution into the structure of the crystal itself. Um, does that sound right to you? Um, yeah, I mean, my knowledge of vacuum tube operation is pretty limited. Um, we, uh, when we were reading uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects, there's a, a long development about the history of vacuum tubes and you know the triodes to uh, tetrodes and so on, um, which we you know struggled with because none of us were like you know vacuum tube experts. Um, um, and yeah, so it's kind of unfortunate that this is his example because it's one that um, is pretty obscure to those of us who do not know a lot about vacuum tubes. Um, I remember that part. Sound... That was that was one of my favorite parts of, oh, of was technical it? <laughs> objects. Yeah, yeah, anodes and cathodes. Yeah, um, and and so that for in in that book, it was an example of um, uh, increasing concreteness of technical objects. So it. Um, yeah, each each sort of stage of the evolution of a vacuum tube um, sort of makes it more concrete uh, in in his sense of that word, which we looked at in that book. Um, but here, yeah, I think you're right, Angus, that um, it um, modulation is um, a, a kind of amplification. So you have a low energy signal. Um, so, like for instance, if you have a frequency frequency modulation. You have a low frequency current um, that modulates a high frequency current, um, uh, and the low frequency one has low energy, uh, and then uh, it's amplified by the high frequency um, current. Uh, and so this is how like a, a radio operates, for example, with, with FM radio. Um, um, and the uh, so this is a, a sort of instance of um, modulation in and the instance of amplification the same way that the crystal uh you start with the germ crystal which has a certain structure and then that structure gets amplified across the whole domain of crystallization uh so likewise here you have um um a sort of uh domain of uh the the high frequency current the high energy current which um um uh, undergoes structuration, which uh, amplifies, in which the uh, other signal, the low frequency signal, the low energy signal is amplified. Um, so, yeah, like it, in each case, we have modulation as a kind of amplification of a signal, um, as a, you know, a, 
a starting point of information that gets amplified across um, a domain that is not yet structured. Thank you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about vacuum tubes either. <laughs> um, the other thing that kind of stuck out to me in this, um, the paragraphs we just read, is the idea of, or I guess the role of asymmetry in the um, platonic model of hylomorphism. It seems like in the platonic archetypal hylomorphism, there is an absolute asymmetry between the form as that which imprints itself on the coins, for instance, and the coins themselves, which simply receive the form. Um, but in um, transduction or in individuation, there is also an asymmetry, for instance, between the two um, monocular images in vision. Um, and I think he also talks about this in terms of pendulums, pendula, I guess, um, uh, communicating their um, oscillations to one another, where there has to be there has to be asymmetry in order for that communication to happen, but the asymmetry can't be too great. Um, so it seems like one of the differences, in addition to presumably um, this, the platonic hylomorphism ignoring the action of individuation itself, is that the asymmetry between the terms is so great that uh, there isn't any, um, like there isn't any deformation of the uh, platonic archetype in the same way that there is even a very small deformation of the mold in the brick-making example that he gives, which maybe is in that instance um, some degree of, of or indication that the asymmetry in that uh, form-taking operation is not absolute in the sense it is for Plato. Yeah, the brick-making example I think is probably the best one. Um, so in, in that example... Um, he talks about if you have, so the form-taking operation in the brick-making example is an actual physical operation of taking a, a mold that has, a, say, a rectangular form and, you know, packing it with clay and then um, uh, actually, and then allowing that clay to dry and then the, um, um, the brick has a, a, takes on the form of the mold. And he um, points out that this is an actual physical operation in the sense that the walls of the of the mold have to um bend slightly and then um uh resist um as the clay gets packed into the mold and uh they actually impose a, a physical force onto the uh onto the clay um and it's only insofar as there is this physical interaction that the the form gets imposed on the clay uh and so he takes it so his in in volume one his criticism of the hylomorphic schema um, he's thinking primarily of, of Aristotle there, but his his criticism of, of the hylomorphic schema was that this interaction between the form and the matter is sort of left out of the account. It's it's this um, obscure zone in the middle, and so he he thinks that we need to instead start from that middle point and then show how matter and form um, sort of arise out of that middle point. Um, um, and so here in the case of Plato, um, yeah, so the the uh, physical paradigm of the um, uh, coin making. Um, uh, so in in reality, of course, there is some sort of interaction in the sense that the uh, stamp does degrade if you keep stamping 
uh, a million coins, then you're, you're wearing out that stamp slightly every time you you make a coin, and then by the by the time you make a million coins, it's probably worn down considerably. Um, so um, there is a real interaction, but this interaction is sort of um, we we sort of abstract away from it when we form the the intellectual notion of a of a form. So the idea of a form is a is a, a kind of super stamp that would never degrade. Uh, and um, uh, we we sort of uh, leave out of account the um, reverse interaction where the the metal that we're stamping um, uh, to some extent imposes its form onto the the stamp itself. Um, so we we ignore that side of the operation. We only look at the one direction of operation. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, maybe this is also tied with what we were talking about earlier in, in the way that um, uh, there's the reversible interaction in uh, sort of reversible um, form taking operation in uh, living individuation. So a living being can learn a habit and then unlearn it um, and then learn a, a new habit, um, which is sort of grounded in this fundamentally irreversible operation uh, at, at the physical level, um, I think maybe we can see the um, the uh, irreversibility of uh, maybe this is sort of the contrary side of this: the irreversibility of the um, form-taking operation in in the Platonic um, archetype schema is um, is sort of realized in a reversible operation of uh, form transmission or information transmission between the um, the stamp and the metal, so they're in interaction with each other as opposed to a, a, an asymmetrical, irreversible uh, form imposition. So, um, in we see sort of both directions where the um, the asymmetry and the symmetry are sort of in reciprocal interaction with each other, depending on which uh, which side of the operation you want to look at. Yeah, that's a great way to put that. Um... I think it's it's also interesting that this it seems like part of his criticism or maybe his whole criticism here of Plato is is similar to his criticism of Aristotle in the brick making example, which is basically that Plato's uh, is improperly applying a, a technical paradigm without really taking account of all of the the details of the paradigm. For instance, the reversibility of the of form taking, as you just mentioned. Yeah, it would be interesting to um, maybe go back to the part of uh, history of the notion of individual when he talks about Plato and Aristotle and then try to tie this um, criticism of the hylomorphic schema to his discussion of Plato and Aristotle and to see to what extent there's a difference um, in his treatment of Plato and, and, and of Aristotle. Um, because, um, well, we'll see more on Aristotle in a minute, or, or when we get to that part of this uh, of this text. Um, but one one sort of key point of difference is that um, Aristotle does think that there is um, uh, a sort of inductive um, knowledge uh, gaining process. So you um, you can learn about entities by um, you know starting from uh, looking at a bunch of trees and then, you know, gaining the concept of a tree in general or of a horse in general or whatever, um, you know, uh, and, and ultimately that, that's the only way that you can learn about, um, about entities in general is by, um, abstracting from the, um, 
um, from the particularity of each individual entity, but, um, you know, uh, finding what they have in common, uh, in the shared um, form that uh, explains the structure of the individual entities. Um, yeah, so uh, in, in Aristotle, we have a different epistemological picture. And then we, as we saw in uh, when we're looking at Plato, um, the epistemology and the metaphysics are closely linked with each other. So to, to the extent that Aristotle has a different epistemology, we have to um, assume that there's a different metaphysics as well. So um, yeah, we would have to, I think, particularize this argument um, that Simondon makes about um, the form-taking operation. We would have to um, sort of specify it in a different way for Plato as, as we would for Aristotle. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit, next uh, page or so, uh, if someone else would like to read. Uh, I will. Sure. Yeah. If I wish to depict this manner, this part, right? Yes, exactly. Hmm. If I wish to depict this manner of considering form in a single stroke, we'll say that since form is perfect from the outset, Platonism, Platonism constitutes a system of a conservation in respect of the idea 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 give, uh, given once and for all, or instead it is a return to the idea. Science is a reminiscence and anamnesis, and it is also a contemplation when one has just rediscovered what the soul recollects because it is Adelphe ton Aden, sister of the ideas. Individual morality is a conservation. It is the conservation of the structure of the individual through which the individual realizes the idea of man. Individual morality is the conservation of the relation that must exist appropriately between between new thoughts, epidemia, intellect, passion, and appetite, according to the principle of justice. But in fact, it should be called just justness, just justice. Ah. Uh, that preserves the structural system that characterizes the individual. However, such as it is presented in Platonism, the form, as far as it is superior and immutable, is perfectly suited to present the structure of the group and founds an implicit sociology, a political theory of the, the ideal group. This group is more stable than individuals, and it is endowed with such an inertia that seems permanent. Furthermore, relative permanence is considered by Plato as being or faced with being true immo immobility. We know that the ideal city is one that must not vary. The task of a philosopher magistrate who knows the number of the city and the measure that characterizes the relations between the different social classes, just as he knows the rapport between the virtues of the individual, uh, is to be the guardian of the constitution. The law is what allows the city to remain to remain unmodified, just as uh, physical laws remind us invariance. Plato has indeed discovered the invariance. However, based on the example of the sciences, we know that the invariant an invariant could be considered as characteristic of a physical theory. The conservation of energy, conservation of matter. Conservation of the totality constituted by matter and energy. For Plato, the invariant of the idea, but this 
uh, this idea is the structure of the group founding a metaphysical sociology, a pure sociology become metaphysics. Such a conception of form leads to realist, uh, re, real, uh, realist idealism and to repudiation, repudiation of any possibility of logical empiricism or of physical combinatories, combinatories, like those of uh, uh, Lucipus and Democritus that constitute the being starting with the elements and the fortuitous, fortuitous encounter due to chance. No doubt, Plato was not absolutely satisfied with this doctrine, since we see, due to what Aristotle left us in books, I'm an end of his metaphysics. Toward the end of his life and in his initiatory, initiatory teaching, Plato uh, wanted to find a formula that could explain becoming. Instead of seeking to flee from here to there, he wanted to immortalize the and the sensible. The doctrine of the number ideas perhaps indicates a desire to discover a more precise, more essential meaning in becoming. In the same way, the notion of the indefinite diet, diet that the large and the small and uh, of hot and cold, which allows for a more precise explanation of uh, the material, the world measured, is more appropriate for sensible object, objects and their genetic becoming than the in the Eidos. However, the such part of platonic inspiration, at least in the form that was passed on to posterity and that has become platonism, is the archetypic, uh, what's that? Arch archetypal, archetypal form, i.e., the explanation of the presentation of process influence that places a complete structure before and above all endangered beings. Here, or should continue? Yeah, let's stop here uh, because he's going to go on to Aristotle next. So we can um, stick with the Plato section. Um, mm -hmm. Right. So here he talks about um, the sociological picture that Plato um, develops in the Republic. Um, so, of course, in, in the Republic, he, he gives um, this um, sort of analogy between the individual human being and the city. Uh, so the, the human being is composed of these three principles or these three um, psychological faculties or whatever you want to call them. Uh, so there's nous, um, which is translated as intellect. Uh, there's tumus, uh, which is translated as passion. Um, and there's epitumia, which is usually translated as appetite. Um, and so each to each of these principles, there corresponds a certain class in the city in the ideal city that he puts together in the Republic. Um, so Nus, of course, um, corresponds to the, the guardians who, um, um, you know, guard the laws of the city. Um, Tumos uh, corresponds to the warrior class who um, protect the city. Uh, and then Epitumia, um, it corresponds to the, um, the, uh, peasant slash artisan class, the people who produce the, the goods that are needed for the life of the city. Um, and then for, um, he, he takes it that justice is um, a kind of proportion of these elements. So both in the individual, um, you have to have the right proportion of these different um, uh, sort of faculties of the soul. Um, 
And then in the city, there has to be the right proportion and uh, relationship between the different classes that make up the city. Um, and so ultimately, the um, political and moral philosophy that goes along with this picture is one of conservation. So the correct political action is the one that preserves the structure of the city, um, that you know preserves the relationship between the classes. Um, and um, so what Simondon compares this to is the physical notion of an invariant. Um, so some of the sort of basic invariants in physical science are, of course, the conservation of matter, the conservation of energy. Um, so in, a, in um, like a, a simple mechanical system, you have a um, um, momentum is conserved throughout all of the different interactions. So if you have, you know, billiard balls bouncing off each other or, you know, a pulley lifting up a weight and then dropping it or whatever, these interactions, um, in principle, they conserve momentum. Um, the, the sort of uh, tricky point is that some of that momentum gets dissipated as heat through friction. Um, so you have to account for that uh, in your sort of uh, conservation equation. But um, um, yeah, so each of these, um, each sort of physical interaction conserves a certain property. So it, it, that property remains invariant uh, uh, across that operation. Um, and so Simondon takes it that Plato has sort of discovered the notion of an invariant. And um, he takes it that the, the correct political action in a city is the one that preserves invariance, the, the invariance that... Um, are the sort of quantitative ratio of the different classes in the city. Um, and then he points to what is sometimes known as Plato's unwritten doctrine, which is a, a, a pretty obscure topic, um, you know, precisely because it's unwritten. So we there's some testimony in ancient authors like Aristotle uh, and others about um, how Plato had a, a somewhat different doctrine that he taught in his... In his um, um, academy, um, um, where, um, which had to do with, um, becoming in relation to the indefinite dyad. Um, so this indefinite dyad, um, includes all these notions like large and small, hot and cold, etc. Um, and, um, there would be some sort of account according to this unwritten doctrine of, um, the becoming of entities in relation to an, this indefinite dyad. So entities can become hotter or colder or, you know, larger or smaller or whatever. Um, um, and this would not be, so it, it, rather than seeing an entity as being uh, a sort of imperfect copy of an idea, you would instead see entities as um, being situated in relation to this indefinite dyad and being in becoming in relation to this indefinite dyad. Um, but, uh, you know, again, the the whole unwritten doctrine is pretty obscure because we only have secondhand testimony, um, um, in particular from Aristotle, who criticizes a lot of the doctrines of Plato. Um, so, you know, we can't be that certain of what exactly those doctrines were um, that Aristotle is criticizing. Uh, yeah, and Angus has posted a link in the chat to um, a book about the uh, the unwritten teachings of of Plato. Um, and yeah, so. You know, some scholars have tried to reconstruct what exactly these teachings were, um, you know, based on the the sort of hints that we have in other ancient writers. Um, um, but uh, yeah, it's a, definitely a difficult undertaking because of the fact that we don't have any um, firsthand records of what these teachings were.
Yeah, I'm not sure what the Tubingen School of Plato scholarship is, honestly, but I was just looking at this. There, there's a chapter in this book on the indefinite dyad, um, but the way that they present it, there are t- two principles which are prior to everything, like prior even to the the uh, the forms, um, because I guess the in, the dyad is supposed to be responsible for the fact that there's a multiplicity of forms, among other things. Um, but I. I remember um, you mentioning in a previous session that because this is not the first time Simon Don has brought up the indefinite dyad, um, that you know you could think of the uh, disparation of terms in signification or in individuation as being related to the indefinite dyad. Maybe the terms being like an indefinite dyad, um, like the dyad in Plato. Um, but it seems like in Plato, the indefinite dyad is related to the opposite principle, which is the one, which is the principle of unity. And I wonder if Simon Don sees, um, you know, the signification of these disparate terms as a unification, like the one is a unification of the, um, indefinite dyad in Plato. Um, and it seems like there would be an interesting connection there, between that idea and um, something like the antinomies in Kant, and then maybe from there to Hegel, as we discussed earlier, um, in relation to that footnote and history of the notion of the individual. Yeah, I was thinking exactly the same um, about this sort of relationship between Simondo and dialectics or dialectical thought. Um, and of course, Plato is sort of the um, forefather of, of dialectics. Um, um, you know, like some of his dialogue, the Parmenides, for example, is, is like a 100% dialectical dialogue. Like it's sort of looking at the transformations of concepts of, you know, if the one is not, then being is or or vice versa. And, and you know, all these different um, sort of dialectical inversions of concepts. Um, um, and um, yeah, so this sort of ambiguous relationship of Simon Don to dialectics, I think maybe we can, yeah, connect it with this um ambiguous relationship between the indefinite dyad and the one um, in the sense that, um, yeah, so for Simondon, the indefinite dyad or this disparation uh, is something that has to sort of pre-exist the process of individuation. So we have to think of the pre-individuated reality before individuation as containing these different, um, I don't know, I don't want to say components because it's not something they aren't like entities that already exist, but it has to contain these sort of different um, uh, functions or principles or something. It has to contain this disparation within itself already. Um, um, and it's only after the process of individuation that you can um, sort of point to these uh, sort of individuated entities, but there has to be this sort of uh, duality has to already be there in the pre-individual reality. So um, um, what exactly this duality or this multiplicity that exists within the pre-individual reality consists in or how we can understand it, I think is a, a difficult point for Simon Don. Um, and um, yeah, I think maybe that's a point where um, this uh, relationship between the dyad and the one um, is is sort of reproduced in Simon Don's thought. Um, um, so we, he sort of runs into some of the same problems as Plato does. 
Okay, um, so we're pretty much at time. Um, so I, and we're also at a, a sort of natural stopping point because we're going to go on to Aristotle next. Um, so I would suggest we stop here and then pick up from there next time. Um, so yeah, I think it, we probably need another two more sessions to finish this. And um, uh, in the Simondon uh, forum here, I put the um, uh, PDF of the uh, uh, of uh, in imagination and invention, I was able to get the um, DRM um, removed, uh, and so I, I have a, a PDF in there for those who want to uh, take a look at that, and then we can um, go on to that once we finish uh, form information potentials. Yeah, thanks everyone. Uh, see you next week.